0: The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. What, you're supposed to get down to negative six in Bacargle? Very good evening, if you're listening. Stay warm, the stupidest thing to say, really. It's it's lovely when it's very, very cold in the South Island, especially the central Otago sort of colds. It's, uh, you know, it might be negative four in the morning at Alexandra, but there is great joy at this sort of occasion when you wake up to a beautiful hoar frost. Uh, they really are gorgeous, gorgeous things. Okay, Oh well, that's what the winter's supposed to do, even if it is slightly early for that sort of carry-on to that extent. Uh, we shall waste no more time because next up, Simon Winchester, tremendous author, raconteur, and his new book, Exactly How Engineering, Precision Engineering Changed the World. Find out all about it and listen to him. We dedicate the hour to this interview. So, after the commercial break, we'll introduce you, if you haven't heard of him already, Simon Winchester. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival, New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Simon Winchester, the author of books on big subjects, and they're charming, they're full of awesome stories. God, I love the uh, ones on the oceans. Pacific, Atlantic, The Men Who United the States, and The Map That Changed the World. His latest offering... I say is a salute to the engineer, someone who tries to do things in the real world. A theoretician can tell you what flat is supposed to be or when now is supposed to be, but go out and try it and say that this is it. The book is called Exactly How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. Simon, is that fair? It's a salute to those that try things in the real world?
1: I'm not sure that I intended it to be that, but uh, it uh, the feedback I'm getting from people, when it was published in this country, in America, about three weeks ago, has been essentially that. It's, um, it tends to be people who, when I go to a book signing, um, say, oh, this is for my brother or my uncle, or in one or two cases, for my aunt or my sister, he or she is an engineer. Yeah. And so it's, it seems to have tapped into a market which previously wasn't really served, if you like, by books uh, other than technical books. and so they very much sort of um participants in the real world, as you put it, I think seem to be quite pleased that they've got a book for themselves at long last.
0: Yes, I think engineers get on with it without expecting a parade mean uh, a lot of the time, so perhaps this will suffice.
1: Well, w- I hope so. I mean there are I think two and a half million working engineers in this country, and um Goodness knows how many retired engineers. I mean, one particular field, because I write quite a lo- quite a lot about NASA and telescopes and rocketry and things like that. An awful lot of retired NASA engineers have come out of the woodwork and say, "At long last, there's a book uh, for us which speaks our language." So, so I'm thrilled. But um, you know, it's early days yet. But it, it seems the book seems to be performing quite quite reasonably well.
0: In your prologue there's a beautiful story of an experience your father was involved in engineering and he brought home something that be- was perplexing to you uh can you just regale us a little of this of the story i don't think it'll be a spoiler
1: the job <laughs> well, uh, was dinner time it must have been about um maybe 1953 54 so i would have been 10 years old and we lived in a small flat in north of London, and it was foggy and cold, I have no doubt, and my father came home from work with this rather beautiful wooden box, which he put on the dining room table. My mother and I and my father were just about to sit down to have dinner, but he said, oh, hold on a tick, I want to show the boy something, and he opened up this very elegant box. I remember it had his name on a brass plate on the top, and when he opened it, uh, there were red velvet and about a 100... I think a little over a hundred small steel uh, pieces of metal, some of them cubes in a sort of descending order. So cubes and then um, oblongs and then smaller and smaller oblongs until they became little wafer thin pieces of steel. And, um, they all had little numbers on them, usually three digits preceded by a decimal point, like 0.375 or 0.295. And, um, he said these are called gauge blocks or Joe blocks after the Swede, a man called Johansson, who invented them. And they're a way for people like him, my father, who was a very much a precision engineer, to calibrate things like micrometers. You just stack two or three of them on top of each other and they would come up with a very, very precise figure for the length or the width or the thickness that my father was trying to set his instrument against. So, but what he wanted to show me was, first of all, that they weren't magnetic. So he put a couple of them on the tablecloth, which totally alarmed my mother because she was Belgian and absolutely fastidious person. And she made lace. And I think the white lace tablecloth, she hated my father putting anything on it because they always had a layer of machine oil on them. Anyway, he moved these things around, which further excited my mother, and she just screeched and left for the kitchen. And um, he pointed out that that when he moved the blocks towards each other, they didn't either attract or repel. They were not magnetic. But then he took one of them and put it on top of the other and said, okay, my lad, um, just give me the top one. So I lifted the top one up, but the bottom one came with it. And I thought that was rather odd because they're not magnetic, how come? and I tried to pull them apart. I held the bottom one with my right hand and the top one with my left hand and pulled and pulled and pulled, and they wouldn't budge at all. And my father took them from me and said the way to get them apart is to slide one off the other. It's called ringing. uh, But the reason you couldn't uh, get them off is because when you um, stack one on top of the other, they are so flat, so perfectly machined, that there's no sort of asperities that cause air to get in and and cause a point of weakness the molecules actually briefly bond together so the two pieces of steel actually do become one and it's a testament to their astonishing degree of flatness and so i think that was the first thing i learned about precision engineering that making things perfectly flat is mundane though it sounds terribly important
0: why is the idea of flatness important? And this possessed one of the characters in your book, this man called Maudsley. Why is it
1: important? Well, it's, it's important for many reasons, but if I can give you an example, which goes back a little tiny bit before Maudsley, actually. The person that I reckon invented precision um, was a chap called John Wilkinson, and he was making cylinders for James Watt's steam engine, And in order to make a cylinder... I mean, previously they made cylinders by getting a sheet of iron and bashing it with a hammer until it formed a a sort of circle and then welded the two edges together, stood it on its end, and lo, you have a cylinder. But if you put a piston into it, the cylinder is terribly poorly made and the piston rocks around like a piano drum, and it was useless as a basis for making an efficient steam engine. But Wilkinson said, all you have to do is to put a big block of iron on its side and put a drill facing into it and move it forward over a very, very, very flat surface so that it doesn't rise or fall as it travels into the, into the block of iron. And if you do that, then you should get a hole which is straight and true and the same diameter for its entire length, which indeed turned out to be absolutely as forecast, Was you create the hole, you turn the piece of metal on its side, on its end, lower the piston into it, and all of a sudden it fits like a, a hand in a glove. And, and as a result of that, what steam engine was highly efficient, it didn't leak steam all over the place, and the Industrial Revolution really got underway. And I should say that it got underway on a very specific date, which is May the 4th, 1776, you know, just two months before the founding of the United States. But funnily enough, uh, maybe down in New Zealand everyone knows this, but I did not. May the 4th is star wars day and people would say oh may the fourth be with you (laughs) and um ha 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 but nonetheless i think the fact that precision was born on star wars day is a wonderful piece of poetry but to go back very briefly to your original question in order for that hole to be drilled straight and true into the piece of metal the drill has to be based on something flat and so flatness is crucial to meet machine tools and, and machine making and to, therefore, precision.
0: Something that perplexes me uh, about precision and precision engineering, the standards of precision, um, is that in order to be able to calibrate your precision, you have to have something more precise. And how do you calibrate that turtles all the way down sort of thing? For instance, when is now? Uh, at the top of the hour, they will say, it's X o'clock. Who
1: says? (laughs) Excuse me. Um, That's a very good question, and I go into it in great detail, but not in my original chapter five. My editor thought that would slow down the pace of the book too much, (laughs) so it was moved to the afterward. And I'm very glad you asked the question, because this year, 2018, sees the end of the last physical standard against which we measure things in the history of humankind i mean you ask who says who says when is now who says this is a meter this is an inch this is a kilogram well we do basically we invent these standards and then we measure things against them we did this with the cubit i mean the babylonians and the egyptians that was the length of a pharaoh's forearm the thumb That's an inch, the foot is a foot, a thousand paces, mille passus, according to the Roman legionnaires, is a mile. And then the French came along in the 18th century and said, well, let's not measure this according to the scale of human beings. Let's do so against the scale of the planet Earth. And so they drew a line from the pole to the equator through Paris, of course, (laughs) and measured it very carefully and then divided it by 10 million and said that is the meter, and they've made a bar of platinum and put it in a vault in outside Paris and said, that is the meter against which every standard of length on the planet shall be measured. Well, all of those standards have disappeared now, except for one, and one remains to this day. It was smelted in 1889 um, out of platinum and iridium in London and then moved to Paris, where it sat ever since as the unit of mass. It is the kilogram. Huh. And all kilograms, whether they're in New Zealand or Nigeria or Nottingham, are measured against this one beautiful, shiny piece of platinum iridium under three glass bell jars in a locked, triple locked basement room in a mansion in a place called Sèvres outside Paris. Well, that's going to be abandoned formally in November this year, the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, to which all countries in the world subscribe except for three in those countries are uh, Liberia, Myanmar, and the United States of America. Mm. Everyone else uh, goes along with this and says, okay, uh, the, meat, you know, the, the meat has been abandoned and this, uh, the unit of time has been abandoned and changed to something else. Well, we're now going to do the same to the poor old kilogram. And so it'll be something that has been absolutely invaluable to the planet for 150 years, is now going to be put into a museum and covered with dust and forgotten about.
0: And replaced with what? Are they counting atoms and how do they know how many to count?
1: Well, it's not quite that simple and it is so complicated that, as Richard Feynman the physicist says, no one really understands quantum mechanics, but this has all to do with quantum mechanics. Basically, mass is going to be calculated using the Planck constant, and the speed of light. And can I please leave it at that? (laughs) To explain this in any more detail would take hours upon hours.
0: To dismiss this as trivial or a funny story would be criminal. Calculating mass keeps things working, saves lives, keeps airplanes in the air. It's a really, really vital thing.
1: It really is, and the principle of what's called traceability, and this goes back to your original question, Everything should be traced. I I, I don't know the number of the kilogram you have in Wellington. I assume there is one in the Bureau of Standards somewhere. Uh Um, So every time you buy a kilogram of sugar, then the scale, whether it's in Dunedin or in the Cargill, that you uh, weigh weigh that sugar according to has to be checked every six months against the the, the New Zealand unit of mass in Wellington. And every so often, that one is taken to Paris to be compared. And there are six what are called witness kilograms in Paris. They're very, very precise, but not as precise as what's called le grand K, the IPK, the International Prototype Kilogram. But the New Zealand one and the American one and the French one and the British one all have to be occasionally compared to the six in Paris. And once in a while although actually only four times in the last 150 years are they checked against the master kilogram. So everything is kept literally on the level and everyone can rest easy that when you order a kilogram of sugar you get a kilogram and not three three quarters of a kilogram.
0: These ceremonies actually take place, do they? I thought it might just be nominal and we blithely just carry on assuming that our kilogram is a kilogram. They do check.
1: They do check, and uh, they, they love checking. The uh, The people who are metrologists, who, and believe you me, the copy editors of this book had a terrible time because they kept putting in meteorologists. And huh? I'd say, no, that is the weather. Metrology is... <coughs> you must excuse my cough. Metrology is the science of measurement. And the seven basic units of what's called SI, the System International of Measurements, which are things like the lumen, you know, the unit of light, and the ampere, the unit of electrical current, Well, also length, time, and mass, um, they love checking them because the, 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 the weighing devices they have in the metrology institutes around the world themselves have to be calibrated and so they love rushing off and taking their standards to somewhere which has an absolute standard and checking them against them but soon it's all going to be numbers and it's going to be no longer poetic and um beautiful and it's going to be even more accurate but much less romantic
0: there was a moment in your description you said they measure it against the most precise kilogram how do you know that this is this is the confounding thing that makes my head explode occasionally (laughs) how do they know that that is a kilogram what uh, and in order to know it was more precise they have to have something more precise to measure it against so why don't you use that
1: well, no. But, uh, that, that's where we rub up against uh, a problem of understanding. The, the the thing that I have mentioned that is soon going to be obsolete in under the three glass jars in Paris. That is the kilogram. Uh-huh. It's not ever to be compared against anything else. That is it. Everything can be compared against it, but it is quite literally incomparable. Ah. Uh-huh.
0: It should... be it, What is going to happen to that thing? It must be preserved somewhere in, in the Louvre under... Oh, well, its sure, I, you
1: took the word out of my mouth. It should go to the Louvre because it's, it's slightly unprepossessing. I mean, it's a cylinder about the size of a Zippo cigarette lighter, beautifully polished. But it's it. It's seldom handled by a human hand and um, treated with enormous reverence for a very, very long time. And then suddenly, literally overnight... So I think the meeting is something like the 30th of November, on the morning of the 1st of December, it'll be quite not just incomparable, it'll be useless. It'll have no function at all. And so you could just pick it up and, you know, kick it around like a football because no one would care. Mm.
0: Um, another problem with measuring precision is uh, perhaps something like... Uh, you, you've got a lot in here about precision mechanisms like watches. Um The watch itself takes energy, and how to make it um, be precise is that you have to take into account the energy that it uses. I wonder about this sort of thing with uh, something as mundane as an electricity meter. The person comes and measures the electricity meter outside my house. but That electricity meter takes energy itself. It does,
1: and it's energy which, of course, you pay for. Yes. Factored in, there is an Uh, algorithm there which will say, well, I'm afraid his electricity meter costs, you know, 10 cents a month to to run, but he's going to have to pay it, so we'll add 10 cents to his bill.
0: How to know it is accurate uh, when it uses energy itself? That is the, the burning question and something that engineers always have to grapple with.
1: I'm afraid they do but there's there's an algorithm for that and I think you can that's, that's the best excuse you can give you know how much electricity an electricity meter itself consumes um which is mercifully I think rather little mm. but I think here in America I never I mean I live on this farm in the middle of absolutely nowhere and I I know that no one ever comes to read the meter but in fact I I think they're using drones now mm. low flying drones and they sort of zap a photograph of it and then move on, or it has a, a barcode or something. It's kind of terrifying. Mm.
0: There are uh, many stories in here about people that changed our world, or at least uh, opened a door through which we could make the world that we live, and we, we blithely go on without regarding the basic work that uh, went on to creating the, the stage on, on which our lives act. There are some criminally uncelebrated people. Nominate a story of one. You have Wilkinson or Maudsley.
1: I like Joseph Brahma, and I'll tell you why. Brahma, probably, unless you're a big Dickens scholar, and Brahma, the name B-R-A-M-A-H, crops up a lot in Dickens because it's become synonymous with locks. If you open a door in the Dickens novel, it's quite likely that the old chap will say, out of his pocket, he reached and... Took out the Brahma, the key, in other words, to open his door. (coughs) So, um, the interesting thing about the uh, put this less complicated way: the first uh, precision device was a cylinder for a steam engine. Joseph James Watt ordered five hundred of these cylinders from John Wilkinson, and thereby had 500 working, highly efficient, very powerful steam engines, and the Industrial Revolution quite literally was off to the races as a consequence. This had an enormous social effect in Britain, because up to that moment, let's say 1760, um, most wealthy British people, English people, let's just confine it to England, lived in the countryside. They lived in large houses or occasionally castles, mansions, granges, whatever. And they quite reasonably felt secure in their person because they had, you know, between the house and the next house or the little village, there were fields and there were walls and there were hedges and there were ha-has and there were servants, of course, to keep them feeling secure, that if there were any ruffians out there, they didn't come very close to the house. All of a sudden, as a result of the Industrial Revolution, as a result of Wilkinson and Watt getting together and making precise steam engines... Factories started to be built, people started to make fortunes, cities were created, and in those cities were the factories and the men who made money from them. And So all of a sudden, you had wealthy people, nouveau riche if you like, living cheek by jowl with poor people. And the consequence of that, it needs no saying really, rich people living close to poor people breeds envy, and envy breeds crime, and so... All of a sudden, these rich people, these new rich people, didn't feel secure in the way that the rural rich used to. And so they built strong houses with big, thick front doors and locks, sophisticated, unbreakable locks. And Joseph Brahma was the man to do it because he had learned, essentially by watching what Watt and Wilkinson were doing, how to make mechanisms. And his mechanisms were a lot smaller and they were fashioned by this man, Henry Maudsley, who worked with him and who had, quite separately introduced the whole idea of flatness. And the interesting thing about Joseph Brammer's lock, I mean, Brammer created the first flush toilets in Britain. He made the first fountain pens. He made a machine for counting banknotes. I mean, he was an extraordinarily prolific inventor. But his lock is the most famous because he was so proud of his lock and he said it is absolutely unbreakable. He put one on a velvet pillow in the bow window in his workshop at 124 Piccadilly, the western end, you know, almost in the fields, um, and said, anyone that can break this lock without smashing it to bits, uh, I'm going to give 200 guineas. Oh. Well, the years went by. No that people came in, tried to pick it. They couldn't. They were defeated by the complexity of the mechanism. And it wasn't until 1851, and he put the lock in in 1790, so 61 years later, he had died. His son, the business still remains, but his son uh, was running it then. Um, They decided to put the lock in the Great Exhibition, which was held in the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, and the same invitation, anyone that can pick this lock will win these 200 guinea coins, which were now on display and under a bell jar. And um, an American turned up and he was called Charles Hall and he made locks in New York City, a lock with a horrible name, the para-utoptic lock, which he said was unbreakable. But he said, first of all, I'm going to pick your lock. And they said, be our guest. And so working with an array of tiny little instruments and very powerful lights and magnifying glasses, 51 hours later, there was this satisfying click and the lock opened. He had won the challenge that had been put 61 years before and the brahma company said okay well fair dues here's your 200 uh, guineas you've picked the lock we don't frankly feel that our reputation has been besmirched because any burglar that's going to take 51 hours to break a lock probably deserves to break into the house so anyone that buys a brahma lock can feel secure so now what about your lock and so a man stepped forward and said i think i can break the parautoptic lock that mr hall has brought over And he did so. It took him 15 minutes with a small piece of wood. And uh, his name turned out to be Elihu Yale. And so the Yale Lock Company was born on the humiliation, although the uh, the well-financed humiliation of Charles Hall and uh, the continuing reputation of Brahma's Lock. So I'd nominate him as my favourite character from the 18th century. Um,
0: Also, why you would prefer it was royce rolls that's a lovely story
1: (laughs) well i i look at the two it's, it's an important story because of the way that precision diverged in the early part of the 20th century in two rather separate ways but it begins with the story of two men both named henry both born in 1863 both born into relative poverty and rural in one case America, and that was Henry Ford, and the other in rural English Midlands, and that was Henry Royce. They were both captivated by the newfangled business of automobiles, and they bought from France a thing, each unknown to the other, a De Dion quadricycle, which was essentially two bicycles welded together with a frame between them and sporting a 10-horsepower, two-cylinder, very crude petrol engine. And these two men, as I say, completely unknown to each other, zipped around the country and thought, my God, this is fun. We're going to do something with this. And Henry Royce said, I'm going to make the most perfect automobile it's possible to make. Henry Ford said, I'm going to introduce automobiles to everyone. So this amazing country with, you know, the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or Florida can be seen inexpensively by everyone what I choose to do in the book is that I look at two cars made by the two engineers, Royce and Ford, um, which enjoyed essentially the same lifespan from 1908 to 1927. 1908 to 27 in England was the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, and Royce by this time had formed a partnership with the Honourable Charles Rolls, who was a of park avenue swell who didn't know much about cars except he knew how to sell them and it does remain as you suggested in your question a matter of chagrin to many engineers (laughs) that henry royce said you can take pride of place in the name of the company we'll form rolls royce but the engineers said no 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 henry royce is the engineer he should go first but that didn't happen and to this day they keep up a sort of rebellion every time a car slips off the production line instead of saying there goes a Rolls, which is what you and I would say they would say no, 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 that is a Royce, that is a memorial to the engineer who created these things so let's call it what it is a Rolls Royce, the Silver Ghost was the quietest most beautifully engineered piece of mechanical uh, um, automobile you could imagine, it was you know, it could rev it to full revs and a penny piece would stand on the radiator and w- wouldn't vibrate, wouldn't fall over. It could go thousands of miles in top gear only. You didn't need to double clutch and go down to first gear. It was just <laughs> astonishingly engineered car. But the same period of time, 1908 to 1927, when Rolls-Royce was making just 8,000 Silver Ghosts, Henry Ford was making 16 million Model T Fords. And the difference between the two of them is a subtle but an interesting one. That you think that the Rolls Royce would be the most precise machine. Well, it wasn't, because they were handmade. And if a piece didn't fit, the man who was making it would simply take his file and file away a bit of excess met- metal until it did fit. Whereas on the production line in Detroit, the old henry ford was making this massive army of model t fords all the bits and pieces that went to make it up let's say all the bits of the carburetor all the bits of the transmission all the bits of the gear shift or whatever all came down from hoppers on the floor above and they were all supposed to be made with absolute precision so they were and this is the key phrase interchangeable they were interchangeable parts So every little tiny piece of every carburettor was exactly the same as its predecessor and its successor. And if one was not made correctly, but was dropped into the production line and didn't fit, the whole production line would grind to a halt. There would be a massive investigation of what piece didn't fit. Let's find it. Where is it? All the workers would stand around smoking. Everything would cost money because the production line wasn't running. And so precision turned out to be much, much more important for the mass production of inexpensive things than for the hand making of terribly, terribly expensive things.
0: Yes. And when you consider uh, the preposterous nature, really, of a motor vehicle, uh, the amount of things that, uh, the amount of moving parts that all have to behave perfectly correctly in relation to each other all at once, all the time. It's uh, it's quite an achievement, actually.
1: It certainly is, and yet in a Model T Ford, there were only a hundred parts. Oh, really? In a, in, yes, and I have a, a Toyota Land Cruiser, which I know there are a lot of, at least in Australia, maybe not in New Zealand, but that's got something like thirty-five thousand parts, and um, that's why it's so much more expensive than a Model T. And Model T, which incidentally, during its lifetime, came down in price from eight hundred dollars. To when it went out of production in 1927, a mere $219. So it meant that almost everyone could afford one—a tin lizzie as they were called.
0: I don't want to tire you out, but I love to. <laughs> I love talking about this stuff. Um, are you up for a couple more questions? Oh, absolutely, yes,
1: oh, if your listeners are up for a couple more answers.
0: <laughs> I think so. Well, look, there are engineers out there that will be going yes at last, and I recommend the book. <laughs> Simon Winchester, the book's Exactly. We'll take a short break and try and tire him out uh, after the commercial break. The Weekend Variety Wireless with DockEdge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Author Simon Winchester is with us. The book, Exactly, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. It's got a screw on the front. Just with the receding limits of how to be precise, um, I suppose a better example, I tried to use the uh, electricity meter, but a Swiss watchmaker, it is almost now proverbial um, term for accuracy, runs like a Swiss watch. Mm -hmm. But if you are a Swiss watchmaker... How can you be satisfied that your watch is accurate unless you have a more accurate watch to
1: measure it against? Well, that's an extremely good question, again, and and, and it allows me to tell the story that fascinated me about the way that watch industry has developed in recent years. And to do that, I turn not to Switzerland but to Japan and specifically to the company called Seiko. Mm. The word Seiko effectively means precision. They've been making clocks and watches since about the 1890s. And they invented the quartz watch, the movement, which not based on hairsprings and mainsprings and moving parts, but on the oscillation of a quartz crystal when it's subjected to an electrical charge and that is an absolutely invariant number. Quartz only oscillates at a certain figure, and given that, you can drive a clock from it, or a watch from it. And they've been doing so ever since the 1960s, when they invented it. And um, so you get these digital watches with a readout, which will give you time to three places of decimals. Not, of course, that you would generally need it, unless you're, you know, timing a, a race or you know, a horse race or a running race or something like that. So I went up to see Seiko, which is headquartered in a place called Morioka in northern Japan, um, and they showed me upstairs on the second floor the um, the production line where they make twenty-five thousand quartz watch movements every day. And um, it's just like a tiny little baby production line. Instead of motor cars, it's uh, little watches. And it's all done by robotics, and it's very noisy and mind-numbing. You look at it, and you hate these kind of watches anyway, because they're so sort of cold and bloodless. (laughs) But that is is precision, writ, writ large or writ small. But my minders, I think they could see that I was rather disappointed. And they said, well, come along. This is Japan we're not completely wedded to the idea of ultra-precision, come to another part of the second floor, and they went through a series of double doors. (coughs) Excuse me. We went through a series of double doors, and then all the noise faded away, and it was sort of cathedral-like calm. And there was a huge room with about 20, 25 men and women, mostly middle-aged, it has to be said, sitting each one at a desk with an array of magnifying glasses and rows of tweezers and needles and tiny little uh, instruments. And they were assembling by hand mechanical watches with hairsprings and mainsprings and jewels and little escapements and all the things that you know from the the Swiss world. And um, they say, well, our people, the Japanese people, are frankly tired of ultra precise watches because you really don't need it you i mean no one cares if obviously they care that the railway train departs on time but they're not interested to three places of decimals they want something which is beautiful that tells the time and ticks they love the sound of ticking Mm. and um, so we sell we make about a hundred mechanical watches a day twenty-five thousand quartz watches a day so they're mainly for export um but we adhere to our old principles of craftsmanship. And that is tremendously important in Japan. And I found that very encouraging because throughout researching this book, um, and I went you know, all over the world really, in in America because of the space program and telescopes and so forth, rocketry that I went to look at. People here are wedded to the idea of precision. Absolutely. I mean, with, particularly with the iPhone and the Apple watch and all that kind of stuff. But the Japanese say, no, we may be known nowadays for precision for Canon and Nikon and all the companies that uh, you know, make cameras and electronics and motorcars and things so beautifully, precisely. But we also revere, and we officially revere, the government reveres, people who indulge and engage in craftsmanship, in work in wood, in ceramics, in uh, lacquerware. So the government gives the title living national treasure to people who have become incredibly skilled in craftsmanship gives them a title gives them a pension and gives them sort of public reverence and i think that is enormously healthy that Im- uh, equal weight is given in japan to titanium and bamboo yes and going back to the watches briefly the the line that i love and uh, which made me like the mechanical watches and the fact that Seiko are making them still and people are buying them still, um, even though they're not particularly accurate. I mean, you take a a mechanical watch and it has to be wound, perhaps every night, and it may gain or lose five or ten seconds a week. But I love that line from Dorothy L. Sayers' novel, Gaudy Night, in which she talks about walking home through Oxford um, late at night and hearing on a summer's evening and hearing the bells of the colleges chiming midnight and as she, doing so, as she put it, in with friendly disagreement. And I love the idea of clocks chiming in friendly disagreement and long may such a thing obtain and don't let precision take over our lives totally.
0: That is very charming. Um, and just finally, you alluded to it, the insane accuracy of astronomical devices. Our astronomer uh, yesterday um, asserted something, I believe him, he's an astronomer, that I just thought no this cannot be true. A radio telescope has uh, with a particular accuracy to detect something was equivalent, it has been calibrated to spotting a flea on Pluto. And I just thought no. You, you can't do that, but apparently they can. The LIGO is is kind of similar as well. But what an unholy famous failure in astronomy when you you, you it's it's a, a bit of it in your book as well. The Hubble scope, that wasn't a bit out, was it?
1: Well, it was it was a bit out because the mirror, which oddly enough was polished in a factory not twenty miles from where I'm sitting now, um it was out by one-fiftieth the diameter of a human hair huh? and and yet when the light was reflected by that mirror, captured and sent down to Earth, it rendered everything completely fuzzy. So it looked awful. It was as people would say, Mr. Magoo sent up to space, you know, with bottle-thick spectacles. <laughs> but then they corrected it. They went up three years later. They worked out how to, as it were, put contact lenses into the thing and they corrected the optics, and now it is the finest telescope imaginable. (coughs) Now it is the finest telescope imaginable, except that very soon, unfortunately it's been a bit delayed, it was going to be 2018, but it's now going to be 2020, the successor to the Hubble, which is called the James Webb Space Telescope, is going to be launched, and that is going to make the Hubble look as if you're staring through a bottle of a beer bottle smeared in Vaseline because this is going to be so perfect but it comes at an enormous price tag. The one thing that I would love to leave you with is a a statistic that I find totally mind-boggling which is to do not with optics not with mechanical precision but with electronic precision and it relates to the number of transistors there are out there in an iPhone the one I'm holding in my hand now, not speaking on, but holding, that's got a chip in it, an Apple A11 chip made in Taiwan, which is about the size of my little finger nail. And that has in it 4.3 billion transistors, not million, but billion. But that number is not the most mind-boggling. What startles me totally is the fact, an established fact now, that there are more transistors in the world. Remember, the transistor was only invented in 1948, and the first one was about as big as your fist. There are now more transistors in the world today than there are leaves on all the trees in all the world.
0: Simon Winchester, thank you so much for being generous with your time. The book's exactly how precision engineers created the modern world. Engineers, you thought you weren't loved. Um, You are now. And I, I think behind the scenes are loved as well because you can write all the elegant, profound equations on a blackboard all day, if you like. But I'm not saying it means nothing, but it really does mean something when you go out and try it. Simon Winchester, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, too.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, the chat with Simon Winchester. Very generous with his time. Uh, and the book exactly uh, should be in good bookstores somewhere near you. Now, after new sport and weather at the top of the hour, we're going to be playing uh, An Outsider Tale with Jared Heinmarsh. This is going to be fresh to the archives. Um, I've been through the Outsider Archives thing with a fine-tooth comb, and we are missing one, two, three, four, about six out of, God, I think it's more than a hundred, that uh, Gerard Hindmarsh has done. So that's a pretty damn good archive anyway. But the ones that are missing, if Gerard's away, uh, we're going to be playing those and adding them to the archive as they go. So the archive will be completely full of, you know, we'll be missing nothing. And I think that's really what an archive should mean. Don't you? Okay, new sport and weather next. And then... The outsider tale of the New Zealand riots, not just one, but many. And some riots you probably haven't heard of that were pretty big and nasty in 1932, especially.